Hey everyone, welcome to season three, episode three with Dr. P. Mm -hmm. Oh God, okay. So that was like kind of a lighthearted intro for uh, (laughs) what we're talking about. But this was like a huge, hugely requested topic. Yes, even I think we were getting this request from like after season one. I mean, it's been, people have been really wanting us to talk about this. And Mm -hmm. I mean, you know us, we're like, yep, let's do it. Yeah. Rip off the Band-Aid. Yeah, totally. And let's find someone who knows what they're talking about when it comes to suit up. Because I certainly couldn't give any sort of, you know, answers on it. And I Mm -hmm. feel like, I don't know, I just feel like I got a lot of um, questions answered in this. And, Mm -hmm. um, and And also, like, what I love about Dr. P is that she drops so much wisdom, not just about suit up, but, like, about being with your uh, neurologist or epileptologist. Good job. You got it. Oh, thanks. Um, And, you know, I just love how much knowledge she gives. And you can tell, like, I think at one point in the episode, we're like, oh, my God, like, no wonder your doctor or your patients follow you across the country. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because I would follow you across the country, too. Exactly. She's the doctor you want. Yes. And, uh, you know, she just keeps it real and, you know, doesn't she doesn't try to hide anything from us. You know, if we had a question, she answered it and she does the same with her patients and. Um, she made like a lot of really um, good points about going into your appointments and yeah. what you should, you know, that you can expect to get stuff out of it instead of going in and being like, uh, I don't totally. know if I should ask this. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's very, it's very empowering and very awesome to hear like the other side, you know, the mm-hmm. doctor side of it. So yeah, um, it was. Really, really recommend listening, tuning into this. Um, one, to demystify suit up, and two, just to get even more tips about, like, you know, working with your neurologist slash epileptologist. We want to uh, mention our fan of the week and our fave of the week. Our faves of the week are also in line with today's topic, and we want to just highlight two nonprofits the Danny Did Foundation as well as Cameron Boyce Foundation. Both of them put a lot of work into educating people with epilepsy about SUDEP and their caretakers. And the Danny Did Foundation really works with like helping people with epilepsy find technology that they're comfortable with because there's like so much out there from apps to cameras to all this stuff. And they mm-hmm. kind of really help like guide people and what works for them. And the Cameron Boyce Foundation is very much like you're di- diagnosed with epilepsy, what now? You know, what can we do? And sadly, while we appreciate like the work of these nonprofits so much, sadly, the story is that the parents lost a child to suit up. Cameron was 20 when he passed and Danny was four. So it's just, you know, it's one of those things where while we're so appreciative, it's just such a sad story as to how they came about. Mm -hmm. Um, But thank you for taking on the work. Yeah, um, turning a horrible situation into something beautiful and yeah. um, that's really, really helping the rest of our community. Totally. 100%. And then our fan of the week. Mark this week. Oh, yeah. Mark sent um, an email saying, it's just a really sweet email saying, beautiful creation with what the F. Uh, so great to see more and more charismatic and creative people getting epilepsy awareness and fellowship out there. We hope he was talking about us, but I think he was referring to our guests <laughs> with the charismatic oh. and creative people. 
But mm-hmm. um, thanks, Mark, for writing in. Really appreciate that. And again, if any of you guys want to write in to our email, it's whatthefpodcast at gmail.com. It's on our website. And you can also DM us on Insta. We really encourage you guys to subscribe to us on YouTube and Spotify and Apple to help keep this going. Well, we'd love to keep this going. So, yeah, we also would love to thank our sponsors, mm-hmm. as always, uh, Norellis and SK Life Science. You guys have been with us since day one, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we wouldn't be here without you. So thank you a million. You guys are family. We love, yes. I mean, we love working with you guys, both of you. And it's not... It doesn't feel like work. It's just like, oh, who do we get to talk to today? Totally. It's it's just, you know, two extra families that we love to have in our epilepsy community. And they are both doing amazing things for our community. So thank you. Yeah, 100%. Okay, guys, here's Dr. P. Hey, guys, welcome to What the F. We are here today with Dr. Kim Pargan. Kim is an attending physician in neurology at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. She also has an extensive resume working specifically with epilepsy and on the board of directors of the Cameron Boyce Foundation. Kim, thank you so much for being here. We are very stoked to have you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So even though we're very excited to have you, we are going to be talking about something that's a little heavier. Um which a lot of people uh, say needs to be talked more about, though. Um, and that's SUDEP, which um, we understand you have a very, being an optologist. did I say it right, Lexi? We're just saying okay. seizure expert from here on out. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. Um, so <laughs> if we could just start with what is SUDEP, and um, just so that our listeners and us are all on the same page before we dive into, you know, subtopics of it. So sudden unexpected death in epilepsy patients, um, or SUDEP, we use that acronym obviously because it doesn't really roll off the tongue to say sudden unexpected death in epilepsy patients every time. Basically, that's when we have a cause of death in a patient with epilepsy that we can't account to something else um, that's more obvious. Uh, Obviously, if somebody dies from a trauma, they have a heart attack, they... um, you know, God forbid, commit suicide or something like that, you could attribute that death to that. But in epilepsy patients, we sometimes have patients pass away and we can't account for it in another way. Um, At this point, we think there probably is some interplay between the seizures themselves and the cardiovascular system and the pulmonary system, in other words, breathing, heart, and the seizures. But since patients aren't monitored 24-7, um, with an EEG or a heart monitor or a breathing uh, monitor, we can't always say exactly what the cause is. It just seems like a, a topic to be explored. Um, why do you think that people are keep saying, we need to talk about this more, we need to talk about this more, we need to talk about this more, if, it's, if it, it kind of just has that like, <laughs> like talk about this sort of um, attention I- to it? I think part of it's because it's a topic that makes people feel uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize how dangerous seizures are. Um, so when someone's addressing um, their patient in a visit, a lot of doctors don't bring up that seizures can be life-threatening. Seizures, can, Most seizures stop on their own after a minute or two or less. Um, most seizures... Um, obviously can be dangerous for other reasons if they happen at a bad time, like when you're crossing the street or when you're, 
you know, up on a ladder or doing something um, where you could get injured or hurt, taking a bath, you know, swimming in a pool. Those things are pretty obvious, but most people don't realize that seizures actually can be dangerous and can be life-threatening. And for some reason, a lot of doctors feel uncomfortable bringing those things up. I think partly because it's a tough conversation. Um, at this point, we don't know exactly what causes SUDEP. Um, like I said, there could be some interaction between those different systems. We have some ideas what the risk factors are because those are the things we see them more so in some patients than others. Uh, and I'll tell you about those in a second. But a lot of times, because it's it's upsetting to patients and it scares people, um, they people don't like bringing up things that are uncomfortable. Um, you want to have a positive visit. You want to say, well, you're, you know, your, your seizure is getting better. And a lot of times we don't like talking about things that are scary. And so bringing up those, those possible causes um, a potential death in an epilepsy patient isn't, isn't a positive thing during a visit. So there's status epilepticus, which is means where the seizure keeps going on its own and it doesn't stop on its own. Um, that can be one thing, which doesn't seem quite as scary, but a lot of times doctors don't bring that up either. And then SUDEP is another thing. Okay. Yeah, I remember when my doctor brought it up and she said, she even prefaced it with like, okay, I'm going to talk about this thing. I don't want, I don't want to scare you because I was having nocturnal seizures. Um, and so she was like, you know, I, and she was the one who, um, kind of insisted I get like a camera in my room to watch me at night and it would, you know, have an alarm and everything attached to it. Um, which, um, you know, but it didn't, I, it, I didn't have great luck with that camera. I uh, didn't catch really anything and just caught me like kind of like moving it, you know, like, oh, here you turned from your left side to your right side. Like it's not, you know, um, I didn't have good luck with that, although I know some people do. So, um, but it's just so interesting that that's the common thing that even so common that that's how my doctor addressed it. Like, I, I yeah, I'm, I wish someone sat me down and said, okay, here's this conversation because for me, it was just kind of slipped in. It was, you know, I'd failed, I think at that point, three or four drugs. I was at a big, big facility. Um, and, you know, they just all of a sudden this term suit up kind of started coming up and I was like, hold on, what does that mean? And he just was like, oh yeah, this. And I'm like, no one's talked to me about that yet. And he was like, oh, okay. Um, so yeah, here's pretty much, you know, what we know. And I was like, okay, that would have been nice to have known. Like, a while ago. And then I started getting, you know, um, approached by people at that facility wanting to do studies. And that's where I learned the most about it was working with like, um, I worked with like a cardiac fellow who was studying, you know, the link between, you know, the heart and the brain. And I was like, thank you. You are answering all my questions by doing all these tests on me. And we, you know, we'll never forget it. But, but initially, it was just kind of glossed over, which I know a lot of people experience. And even people, I'm sure, who are going to be listening to this will be like, what's SUDEP, huh? The risk factors, or at least the, the instances where I think people should be most worried, you mentioned nocturnal seizures. And the reason for that is most people are not being monitored, so to speak, at night. Um, so the you mentioned rolling over. So we, see, um, we worry most about people who flip from 
you know, either what we call a supine, so laying on your back to a prone position, like you know, going to your face. Um, I had a young man after I left Hopkins um, where he flipped on to the prone side and we think he suffocated. Um, so that can happen. Um, but you're people, you know, flip into that position and they're seizing, so they can't turn themselves back over. And there actually are monitoring devices. You mentioned the camera and an alarm. So some monitoring devices, which a lot of times are on like a wristwatch type situation, it can actually um, tell when you've turned over into the prone position. It has a device that monitors what position you're in. And that can alert um, a family member and let that family member know so they can go check on you. So there are different different devices out on the market. The bad thing about that is that um, some of them are not covered by insurance. And uh, so patients who don't have money, um, that may be a little cost prohibitive for them. So I am very frugal and I was very grumpy about paying for that camera. Yeah, I can Im- so, I mean imagine it's yeah. a lot can be a lot of money and mm-hmm. there's not great data for all either some things have better data than other in terms of how effective some of these things are in terms of uh prevention or you know what what it really does to help. People are on a lot of medications um and patients who tend to have whole body shaking seizures or convulsive seizures sometimes seem to be at greater risk too. Um, but Cameron Boyce had had five seizures in his lifetime. And um, the big problem though is that because he had infrequent seizures, um, his doctor didn't worry about getting his medication therapeutic. So his medication levels weren't checked and he was on a medication where we do check levels and um, he, the fifth seizure was the, the one that may have been the ultimate seizure that could have led to his death, we presume. Mm-hmm. So I think the, uh, well, I just want to stop and sorry, so for anyone, everyone listening, no, just, just make note of that because, um, that's something I learned probably a little bit later too, in my epilepsy journey that there are some medications that do need your level blood levels need mm-hmm. to be tested um and so just make sure whatever medication you're on just you know you do get on hop on dr google <laughs> just make sure you see or just check in with your doctor just send them a message call just be like is this something i need to be checked can i get it checked you know and be a little bit proactive because okay. the having the, i never knew how having those numbers was so helpful in my treatment until like th- three or four years in, into it it's okay to questions of your doctor too it yeah. really is a if your doctor will answer need your more doctors to say that yeah need more it doctors is. Just to, because it's just sometimes it's so scary as much as i love my doctor i'm always like yeah okay here we go you yeah know? and having and the, I, you know the right one we always say all the time someone who you're comfortable with yep. who you're not embarrassed to ask questions by because right definitely have had experiences where they kind of look down on you and they're like you know, I really got to head out of here. And I like to always put the ball in their court and say, you know, I have these questions, you know, can you answer them? Because I sure as hell don't have the degree to, you know, figure this out. So, um, you know, it's if they don't and if they won't answer your questions, then maybe find yourself a different doctor. Yes. One hundred percent. My job is to make sure that you 
don't have a feeling of having more questions when you leave the visit than when you came in. So if I not explained everything to you in a way that you understand or you feel comfortable with, then I didn't do my job. Our best bet against, you know, things like suit up and status are to get your, your, your treatment as op at, you know, as ideal as possible and have the least number of seizures possible. But I think some of that has to do with it, it often will take so long for someone to get past the general neurologist to the seizure specialist sometimes. So I think that's one thing that also is a problem for a lot of patients. You know, they'll be seeing the general neurologist and by the time, you know, they failed a lot of medications, they ha still haven't seen that seizure expert yet. So I think one thing for your listeners that might be really important is if you know you've You've already tried a couple medications. You're still having a lot of seizures. Um, it might be good to say, hey, can you refer me to a seizure specialist? Um, and I think that might be the way to advocate for yourself. Um, if you're in an area where you don't have a lot of options, uh, there are ways to see a seizure specialist through telemedicine now, especially since we've gone through the pandemic um, and we have really improved um, telemedicine quite a bit. And luckily, most people with epilepsy have pretty normal exams. So being able to at least talk to a seizure specialist um, at a big academic center or a big center um, is now more available to people than it was before in smaller areas. So I think we've now kind of realized we can still see people in that in that capacity without having to have them drive three hours somewhere. I did not know that. And I love that telehealth is becoming more and more prominent in this sphere. That's wonderful. Especially we were kind of forced to do it anyway. So I think people realize right. in this situation, most of the exams are pretty normal. Mm -hmm. I'd be willing to bet the exam and you, you know, both of you would it, the exam itself isn't the part that's really going to help decide what we do with you. It's more the history that you give us and, you know, what, what's happened to you in the past and what medicines you've tried in the past. They're going to be more helpful. Yeah, totally. And I think I love that. I want to, like, highlight that, too. It's, the his it's your history that is, like, the biggest, you know, determining factor moving forward because I think so many times – I hear this from so many people I've experienced it myself where, you know, after you just feel kind of crazy because it's like, well, you hear from, you know, some expert like, well, that's not possible or from a doctor, you know, mm -hmm. well, that, that, that's, no, there's no way that could happen. And you're like, but it did. And I don't know what else to do because now I feel like I'm nuts. So, um, so like kind of, it took me so long to just finally like own you know, and say, no, like, this is what's happened. This mm -hmm. is what is happening. You know, um, I know, Lexi, you've been great about this for ever because you've, you know, taken notes, not forever, but, mm -hmm. you know, you mom take notes me. and, and your mom, <laughs> your mom, doc mom is the best and has, uh, also takes copious notes on what's going on. But mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's a really important thing to just, you know, point out and that, you know, we're so thankful to have doctors like you who listen to our history mm -hmm. and take that seriously. History is really, in neurology, is so important. It's very hard to, I mean, it's hard to discount what you're experiencing and what you're feeling because it, I mean, I can't say what you felt hurt. <laughs> yeah. But also your family members and your friends, you know, that bystander who sees what's happening once you've had a, when, when you're in the seizure, 
it's hard for you to really say exactly what happened once, you know, especially if you lose consciousness. Mm-hmm. So getting even a picture of your family members is super important too. Yeah. And I definitely noticed you said um, not only pay attention to if the you know medicine is helping you have less seizures, but how well you tolerate it as well. Because even if you're not having seizures due to, due to a medication, I mean, if you can't tolerate it and it's making your life hell on earth, it might not be worth it. And um, there's, you know, doctors like you who realize that are priceless because it's not always like that. A lot of times, you know, people want to just kind of, they're like, no, you're not having seizures, stay on it. And I'd be like, no, 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 I can't tolerate this. So thank you for being one of, you know, one of the the few who truly listen because that's beyond important. Yeah. If you're miserable, you can't stay with that medicine. I, I do wish we get to that point where you can scan your genetic barcode and go, okay, this is the right medicine for this person, but we're just, oh, we're not there yet. Not so that's yeah. Like, there. Yeah. Why we have to do this trial and error and it sucks because people mm-hmm. are like, oh, God, I have to try another one. I'm like, I know, I know, I'm sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah people do okay on this one they're like well not me like, yeah okay. <laughs> yeah exactly and you walk back and you're like i thought people said this was a good one they're like yeah, yeah. Well, and you're like Sorry. just gonna try it it's quite but... a roller coaster for everyone mm-hmm. yeah you know, on both sides okay so back to suit up so i know you had mentioned some risk factors did we hit all of those or were there more so the main ones i would say would be nocturnal seizures um convulsive seizures, and uh, patients on on multiple medications um, are probably the main ones to be worried about. I guess nocturnal seizures in people who are not monitored at night. So if you have someone who sleeps by themselves, lives alone, those would be ones I would worry a little bit more about, I guess, when you're talking about nocturnal seizures. Yeah, I think Uh, that's why my doctor made me get that camera because I love not being monitored, living alone, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's part of why a lot of the watches and the other monitoring devices have kind of focused in on ways to set alarms to kind of either alert somebody else or um, alert in situations where you could kind of um, monitor someone doing some of these behaviors that might um, lead to a potentially um, a potential suit up situation. Right now, I mean, research just kind of has two different veins. There's one where they actually create mice and other animal models for SUDEP, um, which is um, one avenue. And then you also have kind of the clinical research where you look at either people who have happened to be monitored during a SUDEP or a pre-SUDEP event or SUDEP event. And then also um, there have been some studies that have kind of focused on patients who have had a suit up and then families have agreed to autopsies and things like that. So there have been, um, it's not a common occurrence. Um, We kind of estimate that maybe one out of every thousand patients with epilepsy may die from suit up. So it's not very common. Um, But again, that's an estimate. Sometimes it's not always clear. Even as it is, we know um, mortality, morbidity is a little higher for epilepsy mm-hmm. patients than it is for the general population. But again, it could be from 
different things. Um, Is it because of suit up? Is it because of status? Is it just because there could be more accidents or could be other things at play? So when you look at big population studies, it doesn't always tell you exactly why something is what it is. Um, But I think the thing really that we have to hammer home to our patients is that our key with all of this is that seizure, you know, seizures every month, every week, that's not good. That's not acceptable, especially if someone's on a lot of medication. Um, But a lot of patients get very scared when you try to talk to them about surgery or device placement. Um, And I do think that should be, um, that shouldn't make patients more scared to talk about doing surgery and device placement than talking to them about the potential dangers of having continued seizures. Um, And I think that's where we kind of fail our patients. Um, A lot of our patients are like, oh no, I don't want to have brain surgery. I'll be a vegetable. Or, you know, I heard so-and-so had this and they died from the brain surgery. It's like, but you understand you're losing function in your brain little by little by continuing to have seizures. Uh, Most common place where people have seizures coming from are the temporal lobes. And so losing memory function, they're losing things that are really important that, I mean, you both probably understand. And we have patients coming that have had decades of seizures and they're like, my family members are angry with me because I can't remember any conversations we've had. I don't remember what I did yesterday. I can't remember what I lunch today and they're mad because they think I'm doing this on purpose. It's like, you're not doing it on purpose, but they don't understand that this is part of having repeated seizures that are damaging, destroying brain cells and your temporal structures that are supposed to lay down new memories. So that shouldn't, we shouldn't just have patients feel like they, they can't get epilepsy surgery because that might kill them. Um, versus something else that could be a real danger to them. Uh, epilepsy surgery is relatively safe, um, especially if it's well-planned and you have a good epilepsy surgeon. So it's an, I always think it's important to hook them up with people who've had epilepsy surgery before, good and bad, yes. and you know, let them talk to somebody who's had it before. Yeah, and, that's the only time I've... I mean, I uh, tried the VNS for five and a half years, when they first mentioned it, I was like, mm, I don't know. And I was kind of looking at the device, you know, in the office. And I called up a girl that I had just met at the local foundation out here in Denver. And I knew she had it. And she came over and just, like, let me feel it, told me what the experience was like. And I called them the next day. I was like, sign me up. I'm comfortable with it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've since then gotten it removed um, now that I'm seizure-free from something else. But, um I mean, just being able to talk to someone who'd experience it was worth a million bucks compared to just like, you know, as you said, you know, talking with someone who hadn't experienced it. I mean, I can tell you about these devices and surgery all I want, but I've never had brain surgery. Mm-hmm. I've had a device placed. I used to yeah. tell patients about my husband who's had brain surgery for a different reason. And um, so I could tell you what it felt like from a patient's family member's standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, 
course, then my husband and I ran into one of my patients on the Upper West Side of New York, and she's like, oh, can I see your scar? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to do that so many times with people when I see that they have the same scar I do, like my same brain surgery scar. I want to just be like, hi, like, you know, Mm -hmm. like, can we like chat? Yeah, (laughs) like twins. Mm -hmm. But um, so, but, you know, I love that woman's uh bravery i don't yeah. think i could do it <laughs> that's how it should be i mean yeah share your most vulnerable moments vulnerable scars well that's the whole thing it just makes you everyone feel less alone less scared so i guess i guess like the question that we always run into a brick wall is with like and you've mentioned you know devices and things like that but is there like like what if you know you're at risk what should what should we do you know or what should like what can we do um yeah when we know we're at risk like i said i think the biggest thing is to try to work on getting controlled as well as you can with the regimen that you're on and the big thing is to try to work on minimizing big full body shaking seizures the convulsive seizures so um generally tonic clonic seizures seem to be the worst um culprits and that seems to put people at more risk uh then i would say um if you can afford a monitoring device that, you know, might be helpful. But again, if you're home alone and you don't have another person with you, I don't know how helpful those are if you're working on, you know, paying for something like that. Who's the Who is the information being sent to while you're asleep? So I think the monitoring devices might be more helpful if you lived with someone and like say a parent and a child or, you know, a family member and it wakes up the family member, but if you're home alone, I don't know who's that. Who's that going to wake up? No, um, in my case, because <laughs> no. yeah. it because so. I originally had it waking up me, and then that's just asking for more seizures because yeah, you know, then you don't get any sleep. Yeah, there are some people who have also gone through some of the foundations and gotten seizure dogs. Um, so again, I there's kind of some mixed. Um, information about whether that's helpful or not but that's another possibility some of them kind of work on turning the patient over if they seem to be having a seizure or can alert um, the patient if they think they're about to have a seizure and then that you can kind of get into a safe place if that happens Uh, and then you know in your situation I guess looking to see make sure that they got all of the mass you know meningiomas when they do tend to have more seizures sometimes that's because it's an atypical meningioma so kind of the location or the size of the meningioma and if you had to have other treatments with it um and then again it's just working with your individual doctor to try to get you on the least amount of medication that works the best for you but i know in your situation that can be kind of difficult and sometimes trying to find the right medication is is hard do you still have convulsions or do you have mostly no. so i haven't had i haven't had a nocturnal seizure that i'm aware of because i always joke that i was very single during this entire time that i was having nocturnal seizures so there was you know no witness and no one to confirm it um but i haven't had one in years okay and um Good. yeah I, I know that's amazing it's yeah so um and then i have partial complex seizures now so okay. 
and we're working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're working. I'm working all the time trying to, uh, you know, find something that works with, um, works with me and my doc and she's always willing to try, you know, like try something new, see what we can do. So, um, I'm currently in the middle of a med decrease because sometimes medic, you can be on too many medications. I've re- I found for me anyway. And, um, it, actually the side effects of making me tired were causing me seizures. So, uh, that was a few years ago when I was, you know, but now it's like, okay, is, you know, let's try and decrease this one and see if that is also part of the cause. So it's a lot, it's a lot of trial and error, a lot of being patient, a lot of, you know, um, taking breaks from it sometimes when you just can't, cause that takes a toll and Lexi knows that better than anyone. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, that onboarding and deboarding and increasing and Why decreasing. Why live in Colorado? I was just like, I at least need to live in somewhere pretty that I can do all this <laughs> in. <laughs> Where I can be outside and just like stare at the mountains. Even if I can't make it there, yeah. I will just, you know, yeah, that was important to me. So, Well, at least in Chicago, you have some public transportation too. Yeah, so she's oh, got yes, that. I'm so lucky to have the – I love taking the bus. I love taking the L. I don't know why, but I just do. I'd rather take that over, you know, paying for a rideshare any day. I'm very lucky to have that um, and to get to my doctor's appointments. Don't stand on the platform edge. No. Subway. Oh, that, yeah, don't be nope. the person looking down the track and going – It's nope. Nope, I always stay yeah, because I have had a seizure there on the platform, and um, it's not fun. But um, I survived. I'm okay. Look, I'm very lucky in that regard. Um, but yeah, it's just that, that's always the thing where I'm like, just stand in the middle. And, yeah, <laughs> you know. good idea. Other people's bodies. Yeah, very good so, idea. Um, we really appreciate you having this candid conversation with us about suit up and you did mention Cameron Boyce and, um, you are on the board of directors there and we were just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the foundation and also your work there and, you know, and your, uh, not only your work there, but the foundation's work as a whole. I would be happy to. So, um, Cameron passed away, uh, at the age of 20, um, unfortunately, and, um, his parents, uh, Libby and Victor, wanted to try to do um, something in his memory. Um, he was a big advocate for a lot of different things, but they wanted something positive to try to come out of his his passing. So they established this back in July of 2019. I joined a couple years ago. And so far in the last three years or so, they've raised about a million dollars. They partnered with something called Cure Epilepsy, which is kind of a research funding organization. So we've funded, um, I think up to, I think we've funded about two or three researchers so far and given two two-year grants, about $350,000 so far. The other part of the money that we've raised, we put towards a lot of education and advocacy. Cameron had some other interests as well, which we've been trying to funnel more things towards epilepsy now. He had some interest in um, kind of some clean water initiatives and some arts, not guns kind of initiatives too. But we've been trying to funnel things more towards epilepsy to try to focus. Mm -hmm. One of the things we were very interested in is something called the Now What campaign, which is basically now that you've been diagnosed with epilepsy, now what do you do? Um, Just try to help young, you know, teenagers, college students, young adults sort of deal with epilepsy. And so we came up with a college resource guide 
And we've also kind of grown a very big social media presence. So we have about 1.3 million followers online from anywhere from YouTube, Instagram, et cetera, all the different things, Twitter, everything else, probably things I don't even know what they are because I'm getting old and I don't know everything. <laughs> You're uh, in good camp here. We don't either. But we really um, are really excited about the response we've had because we are able to bring up a lot of topics like your like your podcast does for people who don't really feel like they have a forum to talk about things with. They can ask questions of each other. Um, they will often kick questions back to me and the neurosurgeon. We don't dispense advice, obviously, over the internet, but if there's kind of a sure. general question, they'll ask us if we can kind of help a little bit to sort of direct things towards so that that way they can kind of find resources if they need it. We have a a, a website too that people can go to for more information and they're not really hard to figure out it's the cameronvoicefoundation.org um, and we'll have a link to that in our podcast mm -hmm. description oh awesome sure. thank yeah. you mm -hmm. but it's um but i think the nice thing about this is it's really geared towards not only trying to fund research but also um trying to improve both education of our community and the people with epilepsy and making them feel heard. But our also goal, our other goal is to sort of help reduce the stigma associated with having epilepsy. Yes. And I think um, that's really hard. And one of the things I've noticed with a lot of my patients is that, you know, they don't look sick to people. Yeah. They don't look like they have um, a chronic medical condition. And when they have a seizure, it scares other people and they think, you know, there, there's something weird and wrong with them, and it, they're not. You know, it, it. a lot of people are scared to death of seizures. They don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. We still have people that want to pry someone's mouth open and stick something in their mouth. Oh, or, my God, yeah. Or do something crazy. So there, we're still behind the times in terms of education of the public and having people understand what to do with someone when they have, um, when they have a seizure. You know, there's a lot of things that we could, the public could understand better about epilepsy. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. The seizure training, you know, should like, you know, there's CPR training, but someone's more likely to have a seizure than they are to need CPR. So, she, she, you know, that's just beyond me. Kim, thank you so much for being here. Thank yeah, you so thank much you. for this conversation. I, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you're in this sphere. I'm just glad when I see people like you doing fucking awesome work so thank you so much